I'm Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 14th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with Dr. John Newman on how a ketogenic or high-fat diet improves muscle function and memory in aging mice. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Helping others is one of the classic virtues. Aside from humans, only a few other species like orangutans and bonobos willingly help others. This behavior is kind of puzzling from an evolutionary perspective. Why risk your resources to help someone else? The recent finding that African gray parrots are altruistic may offer some clues. To find out whether African gray parrots or another species called blue-headed macaws, and these are two exceptionally brainy bird species, to find out if they would assist their fellows, scientists at the Max Planck Institute in Germany tested pairs of birds in each species. First, they taught the birds to exchange a token with a researcher, and in return, they got a reward, a nut, and that's a treat they love. Next, they gave tokens to just one bird in each pair, But that bird couldn't get the reward. However, that bird could reach its partner through a small window. And then the second bird could trade the token for a treat. The catch? Only that second bird got to eat the nut. In both species, the bird who didn't get the token called to get their partner's attention. But the blue-headed macaws just hopped away, ignoring the cries for help. In contrast, the African gray parrots help their partners by giving them the token without themselves getting any reward. And when the roles were reversed, the birds who had received the token then turned around and passed that token to their former helpers, suggesting that the the grays understood reciprocity. The difference between the two species may be due to how they live in the wild. Macaws live in big, fluctuating flocks, while parrots live in smaller groups with pretty constant membership. The African gray parrots may also be more likely to share because in a small group, many birds are related to each other. Researchers say relatives that help each other can further their own genetic survival via a process similar to natural selection that's called kin selection. In other words, if you help your relatives, they are passing your genes on for you. Whatever the reason, it's cool to know that us primates aren't the only species to do one another favors. This study was published last week in Current Biology. Other recent work. Being bitten by a venomous snake happens to some 2.5 million people annually, killing 100,000 of them. Survivors often suffer permanent physical problems, greatly impacting their lives. This situation is a big problem in rural settings of Asia, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. The most deadly snakes on everyone's shortlist include the King Cobra, Inland Taipan, and Saw-Scaled Viper. Their venom consists mainly of proteins. These proteins have very specific structures. Some act rapidly on nervous tissue. 
whereas the cobra venom is a cardiotoxin that acts on heart cell membranes, often causing the heart to stop. The only current treatment is antivenom, and that has some limitations. Antivenoms are expensive antibodies prepared from the plasma of mammals who have been immunized with venom. Antivenoms need to be administered by a health professional. Antivenoms are very specific to the snake spe species, so you need to know exactly what bit you, and by the time a health professional sees you, you might be unconscious. Snake venom works rapidly, and administering an antivenom is basically a race against time. A recent study from UC Irvine and University of Costa Rica developed nanoparticles that are engineered to bind to snake venom in human blood, preventing their spread. The nanoparticles is a mixture which would be injected. It's low cost, stable, and has the ability to bind to a variety of the toxins in snake venom. This can be administered immediately after the bite by a non-professional, kind of like an EpiPen, and halt or mitigate systemic distribution of toxins after a snake bite. So how did scientists develop particles that could bind to snake venom? The antibodies from animals are very specific. So how would a simple polymer show any specificity for binding to snake venom? The engineering process that is used to identify the optimal chemical composition of a nanoparticle for a target protein is what they call directed chemical evolution. This involves creating small libraries of nanoparticles with different com chemical compositions and screening them against the target proteins. Those demonstrating some affinity for the protein target are taken through another round of optimization. This is about screening, rescreening, and optimizing over and over again. So far, the tests show that when particles are exposed to human serum without venom, the particles associate with some proteins in the blood, but upon addition of the venom, they are quickly exchanged for these venom, and venom proteins. This suggests that these materials could be used as a toxin sequestrant in a complex biological setting. They found that the polymer nanoparticles are effective in capturing the most important toxins found in the cobras and black mambas, all very deadly snakes. Next week on the show, Brenda Ekwerzel, who's the Senior Climate Scientist and Director of Climate Science for the Union of Concerned Scientists, will be in the studio for our show. She'll be in town for the Air Quality and Climate Conference taking place in Denver this Thursday at the historic Colorado Center, 1200 North Broadway, in the morning from 8.30 till noon. It's open to the public. If you're interested in attending this conference and learning about how air quality and climate change affect public health, you can send an email to sstrife at bouldercounty.org, and I'll post this address on our website. Last week, I spoke with Dr. John Newman, an MD-PhD in California, who treats elderly patients and researches the effect of the ketogenic or high-fat diet on reducing the declines found in elderly patients. He describes his recent research in mice showing that both memory and motor skills improve in animals eating a high-fat ketogenic diet. Welcome to the show, Dr. John Newman. Hi, Beth. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you 
about the ketogenic diet and your work with it because it's such a popular thing. It's getting so much press these days, but there's so little research, hardcore research that's been done on it. So maybe you can start off by telling us exactly what it is. And there's some interesting history to going way back almost 100 years. Yeah, it's such a fun topic because it's it's really fascinating biology. Uh, and it's really complicated biology. And we're learning more and more just how complicated ketone bodies and the ketogenic diet can be. Uh, but it's really approachable science because it's the sort of thing that people can experience in their everyday lives. Um, you know, so we're we're doing uh, what we think is, you know, pretty you know cutting edge, sophisticated science on uh, on the biology that happens uh, when someone decides to fast or try a ketogenic diet. So it's a really fun kind of intersection of of science and life. Yeah. So we'll talk about some of the basic science experiments that you've been doing with mice. But um, you just alluded to the fact that are you doing some work with that in humans now too? Uh, my research is almost entirely with with mice, so I'm, so I'm studying kind of the basic science of of uh, what ketogenic diets do in the body and, and how that relates to aging in particular and aging pathways, um, and how one of the molecules that your body makes when you're on a ketogenic diet, uh, the ketone body beta hydroxybutyrate, uh, what sorts of things uh, that molecule uh, does in our body to have uh, to have biological and uh, and maybe clinical effects. So in order to get um, important, significant levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate, this ketone body, in your blood, what do you have to eat or not eat? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, maybe I'll start by telling you how I, uh, why I became interested in ketone bodies and how that led to the ketogenic diet and then what ketogenic diets are. Uh, but I am, so I'm a geriatrician, and I'm, I'm really interested in the biology of aging, understanding what are the pathways that drive uh, aging and that lead to age-related problems like chronic diseases and um, and dementia and functional decline, um, but also trying to understand uh, how to change that, how to intervene on aging biology uh, to improve the lives of older adults. So it turns out, and you probably have, you could probably do you know dozen shows about this, um, that one of the, you know going back almost a hundred years, one of the ways that you can affect aging in the laboratory at least. Um, is by eating less or by fasting, this whole idea of dietary restriction or calorie restriction. Um, and to make you know, decades of research uh, into a very short story, we've basically all learned that uh, when, you're, when you fast or when you, when you eat less food, at least for a short period, that's a signal to your body, to your cells, to turn on repair pathways. And probably this goes you know, way back in evolution, you know, millions and millions of years, um, that organisms evolved a way to try to sustain themselves until the next time that they see a big meal and they can grow and divide and reproduce again. Um, so it turns out that, that fasting and dietary restriction uh, can help animals in the laboratory live longer by turning on these repair pathways. So and when you fast, when you eat less food, one of the things your body does to help survive that not having food to eat uh, is it makes ketone bodies. Ketone bodies are how your body turns the energy that's stored in your fat um, into energy that your cells can use to, to keep going. So you fast, you eat less food, uh, that may be good for aging mechanisms. You're making ketone bodies, or the ketone bodies part of how fasting and dietary restriction affect aging. And that's, that's kind of where I came in. Right, right. So do you want to talk about some of your mouse studies um, to launch right into that story of what the ketone bodies are doing? 
Sure. So, uh, so your body makes ketone bodies when you're fasting, but you can also sort of trick your body into, into living off of ketone bodies uh, by eating a ketogenic diet. So, so a ketogenic diet uh, is basically just a, a pattern of eating where you're eating a, a lot of fat and very little carbohydrates uh, and usually a normal amount of protein. It's actually really important, and I learned in the mice too, really important not to overdo the protein. Right, right. Uh, but you eat a lot of fat, and then your, your body uh, basically lives off of ketone bodies that it makes from the fat that you eat. So even though you're not fasting, there's plenty of calories, plenty of food, plenty of energy, but your body still has lots of ketone bodies. So this is one way that in the laboratory uh, we can try to kind of tease out, uh, you know, is it the fasting, the fasting that's helping to mice to live longer, or, or do the ketone bodies actually help mice to live longer too? Um, so I put mice on a ketogenic diet. That sounds like a really simple thing, <laughs> put some mice on a ketogenic diet, but it actually took me several years um, of figuring out how to do this in a, in a very scientifically rigorous way, um, and that would let me test out whether having mice on a ketogenic diet would help them live longer. Uh, but after a couple of years of kind of painstaking uh, getting ready to do that experiment and, and trying all sorts of different things to do it just the right way, um, I, it turned out that, uh, indeed, if mice were eating a ketogenic diet, which it looks crazy, it's like, it looks like um, frosting. You know, it's mostly fat that they're eating. But as long as they didn't get obese, uh, eating the ketogenic diet, they lived at least as long as when they ate a normal diet. Um, and they actually survived better into old age. Right, so what, really we would call, what we would call health span, their health span was actually better than the mice eating the normal diet. Their health span was better. Uh, the, the health span of these mice was better when they were eating a ketogenic diet, uh, which we can tell because we, we did all sorts of, uh, of testing with them to see just how healthy and smart and active and, uh, and strong they were. Uh, and the biggest difference was actually in their brain health. So their, their memory was better in old age uh, when they were eating a ketogenic diet for most of their life than mice they were eating a normal diet. And this is really uh, exciting because I think a lot of people as we're aging – are really concerned about losing that brain health and their mental acuity. And so knowing that there are some dietary things we can do that might stave that off is really good news. I think it's a, it was a really important finding. And, of course, you know, mice are not people. Exactly. Um, but still, most of the diseases that people really fear, and, um, you know, my, my grandmother... Uh, she, she, what she feared the most was, was getting dementia, getting Alzheimer's disease, and you know, knock on wood, she didn't. She had a, a long and, and very healthy life. Um, but most of those diseases that we really fear that involve the brain, they're diseases of aging, and we've spent a lot of time and effort trying to understand the disease process to try to create prevention treatments or cures. Um, but another approach is to try to understand what is it about the aging process that contributes to the risk for Alzheimer's disease. So there's a couple of examples now out there of, um, of interventions in the laboratory uh, that can help uh, keep the aging brain healthy. And probably, you know, who knows, the, the whole idea is maybe that will help us lead to preventative treatments for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. If we can harness um, how something like ketogenic diet or clotho, to use another example, right. uh, or, or some other factors, are helping make the brain healthier as it ages, harness that, and turn it into preventive treatments for, um, for 
you know, really serious and scary diseases of the aging brain. Right, right. So one of the great things that you did was in this experimental design that you took you a couple years to figure out, and I, w- I won't talk about all the controls. I'll actually link to your website so interested listeners can look at the paper themselves. But you had a lot of different controls, and you put them on a cyclic diet. So they weren't eating this really high-fat ketogenic diet all the time because they got too fat when they did it, and then that would abolish some of the health span benefits. So they'd cycle. They'd be on the ketogenic diet one week and then a normal diet the next week and then back again. And actually, I really like that design because I thought, oh, that's something I could do. And maybe that's even what happens to those of us who do intermittent fasting. Maybe we're getting a little bit of ketogenic activity during that 18 or 20 hours when we're not eating, which would be wonderful because it would be so much easier than trying to do it full-on ketogenic diet, which is, it's actually a little scary to me how much fat you have to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, science is, science is really fun, but science is, is hard sometimes. And, uh, and this is actually a, a great example, maybe your listeners will appreciate, of um, how tricky it can be to try to do an experiment well, uh, even for something that sounds so simple, like I want to test a ketogenic diet. So which ketogenic diet? What ketogenic diet? What are you comparing it to? Uh, how do you in science, you, you need to try as hard as you can to, to make everything in your experiment the same between groups, except for the one thing that you're actually trying to test. So the one thing here I was trying to test was having ketone bodies around. Um, so that meant some mice on a ketogenic diet and some mice on a normal diet. Um, but then uh, how, do you, how do you match the diets as precisely as possible? It turns out in mice, this is really important. You can't just um, you know, kind of throw a ketogenic diet at mice. Uh, you need to be really careful that all the other components of the diet are exactly the same, especially protein content. So it turns out that changing the protein content of a mouse diet um, has has pretty significant effects on on mouse aging and lifespan and and health span even. So you want to, so I wanted to make sure the protein content was the same. Um, so I, everything had to be custom. You know, these are special made, custom ordered diets that were perfectly matched, except that one had almost entirely fat. Uh, and the right. other one was uh, was mostly carbohydrates. Um, but but then I realized, I, I quickly discovered, um, so you're, when you're doing a big experiment, you always want to do a small experiment first uh, just to see if the conditions you've chosen work the way that you think they will. Uh, so when I first fed this very high-fat ketogenic diet to mice, uh, everything I read in the literature said that they would lose weight. And, you know, and people lose weight on a ketogenic diet. Uh, but these mice and this diet, they didn't. They loved it. They <laughs> ate way too much of it. I bet they loved it. <laughs> and they gained a ton of weight. Uh, so, you know, of course you can't study the lifespan of obese mice. Or, I mean, you can. It's short. Right, I right. I showed that. <laughs> it's still short, even if they're eating a ketogenic, even if they get obese on a ketogenic diet. So I had to work out some way to keep them from getting obese. Um, and, and I sort of stumbled into this. But the way I wound up doing that, like you said, was to alternate the diets. So they would eat a normal diet for one week and a ketogenic diet for one week. And then did and, you... And on the one hand... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just curious. How did you know that the mice were getting to the level of ketosis that you wanted? Would you be measuring their blood like the day that the, day that the ketogenic diet started? Or was there a time lag of like three days? Uh, yeah. So, um, so I would measure ketone body levels in their blood uh, by doing the mouse equivalent of a finger prick and then testing a small amount of blood for beta-hydroxybutyrate. Okay. Um, this is another thing, though, that it sounds so simple. Um, you know, how fast 
does a mouse get ketotic when it starts eating keto right, diet? In right. humans, it can take a couple of days. Right. Um, or how or when are ketone body levels highest uh, when a mouse is on a ketogenic diet? We think of ketone bodies as being fasting, uh, so probably when a mouse is not eating, right? And it turns out it's the exact opposite. So yeah. I, I learned all these things in, in getting ready to do this lifespan study that, for example, um, the ketone body levels were actually highest when the mice were eating, which, which oh, now I think makes sense. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're turning the fat they're eating into ketone bodies. Right. Um, so ketone bodies in their blood are highest when they're making the most when they're eating food. Now, unfortunately, that meant that mice are nocturnal, so they eat mostly at night. Right. Uh, so it means if you want to draw the blood um, or, or do an experiment on mice when their ketone body levels are highest, you have to do it in the middle of the night. So I spent a lot of nights in the lab. Oh, you did put them on a reverse <laughs> light-dark cycle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, you're hardcore. <laughs> okay. So, so then you measured, and did they have equivalent levels, or was it a lot lower than what you'd see in humans for beta-hydroxybutyrate? It was, it was actually surprisingly similar. So, okay. Um, they started off probably a little bit higher. So the first month or so that a mouse is eating a ketogenic diet, um, their ketone body levels are pretty high, uh, actually about as high as when they're fasting, um, higher than most people will get to on a ketogenic diet. Um, but over time, as the mice adapt to it, just like humans adapt to it, their blood ketone body levels drop as they become more efficient at right, using the ketone body. Right, right, right. Um, interestingly, though, this, and I, I didn't set out to, to do this, but I think it was useful for the experiment. Um, when you switch them on and off the ketogenic diet, I actually didn't see that adaptation. So their ketone oh, body level stayed high. Okay. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. And these this beta-hydroxybutyrate, the breakdown product of the ketone bodies, is really a cool thing because it acts as a signal to your body. I guess that maybe, I loved it that you mentioned evolution. I love putting things in an evolutionary context that maybe, you know, we we and all our ancient ancestors, even way back to yeast, have this signaling system that tells cells that when they're starving. So it's a way of, of translating from the environment into the, the external environment to the cellular environment saying, slow down, you know, start recycling, start repairing things, don't burn through your resources. But can you talk a little bit about like some of the genes that get turned on. So it's amazing. These ketone bodies can actually turn on genes that turn on these other processes. Yeah, this, this is exactly why I think this is such a cool mm-hmm. uh, bit of biology. Uh, and biology, it's in all of our own, all of our own bodies. Um, so ketone bodies are fuel. That's kind of what most people think of it. They're how, you're, how your body you know, survives, has energy when you're fasting or, or you know, when you're eating a ketogenic diet. Um, but what, what really, uh, I think, is, is kind of new and exciting about this is, is we're learning more and more that beta-hydroxybutyrate in particular um, also acts like a drug. So it, it actually it doesn't just get burned for energy, but it also it binds to proteins, it inhibits enzymes, um, it, uh, it gets attached to the proteins in your, in your cells around which DNA is wrapped. Um, it does. It binds to receptors. It does all these things that a that a drug does. Now it's not a very good drug, um, but it does a lot of different things in the cell. And we're only scratching the surface uh, of what proteins it binds to and what enzymes it inhibits. Um, so we're learning that yeah, it's a beta hydroxybutyrate seems to be a signal, uh, not just a not just an energy source. Um, and we don't we don't really know the extent of everything it does in the cell or or why it does it. Um, but I, I sort of I like this idea you just alluded to that 
um, maybe it's a maybe it's a signal uh, that you know, hey, we're starving. We need to do something differently, uh, and maybe it helps helps our bodies to adapt to either survive that starvation or to um, you know have more flexibility to go find that that next meal that we need to survive. Yeah, and I think uh, it's, so some of the. I think it's good news to a lot of people that might be listening to this that you don't have to starve yourselves with caloric restriction to get the benefits. You can eat a high-fat diet for short periods of time. And so I'm just curious, in the last couple minutes we have, are you translating some of this into your clinical practice in terms of dietary advice that you give to patients? Well, I, I think there's I think there's going to be a, a big future um, in, in maybe changing the way that that we all think about diet and thinking and thinking of diets um, almost more of a of a clinical tool of you know different different diets for different contexts. So, for example, there are a number of clinical trials happening now um, just to study the key, a form of a ketogenic diet uh, to try to prevent or treat um, early Alzheimer's disease. Uh, or even in other clinical contexts to see if that adaptation to stresses might be useful, the same way that um, there's a few clinical trials now studying dietary restriction, uh, for example, before surgery, uh, or in other contexts of trying to get you get the body ready to, re- to respond to a big medical stress. So I think there's a lot of future in, in using diets as clinical tools like that uh, as, we, as we all generate the clinical evidence to know what's useful when. Right. Uh, but I think the other big angle of that is, is understanding the mechanisms um, and what, what studying a ketogenic diet, for example, in ketone bodies can teach us about the way our bodies already work, the way that our bodies already respond to stresses, um, and seeing if we can figure out ways to tweak that and boost that, uh, and maybe with drugs and maybe with other things, uh, but trying to kind of capture the, the beneficial bit of that biology so we can give it to patients when they really need it. Right. Um, as a geriatrician, I'm always thinking of, uh, you know, how can I, I mostly work um, in the hospital, so helping older adults to get through a hospitalization mm, in right. good health. Um, and, and boy, so many of the patients I see, I, I wish I could give them a pill that would, yeah. you know, make their bodies act 60 years younger to get them through a hospitalization in good shape. Um, and I think this really might lead to that. Right, right. Well, gosh, unfortunately, we're out of time. And I'll just end with a, a favorite quote of mine from Aristotle. I think he said something to the effect that let food be medicine. And uh, maybe we can talk to you again in a couple years when you've figured out more of the effects of these really nifty ketone bodies. Thank you so much, John, for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you, Beth. This was really fun. That was Dr. John Newman, geriatrician and geroscientist in California who treats elderly patients and researches the ketogenic or high-fat diet. He described his recent research in mice showing that both memory and muscle function improve in animals on a high-fat diet. If you want to know more, I'll link to his website on the show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Beth Bennett is our executive producer. And Anjel Shang and I produced this week's show, and and Maeve Condren engineered. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Mozart. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ajel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett. This program is made possible by you, the KGNU listener member, and by Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus, featuring Voyagers, a theatrical performance offering creative access to science and math through the performing arts. More information at colorado.edu slash Fisk or by calling 303-492-5002. This is KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Welcome to another talk from the Alan Watts Radio Series number 7, Philosophy and Society, Series 2. In this program, Alan Watts describes the veil of thoughts, which obscures the direct experience of reality, the here and now. Recorded on board the ferryboat Vallejo in Sausalito, it's Veil of Thoughts. Here's Alan Watts. It's curious how, past the middle of the 20th century, there's a very strong evidence of a revival in Western philosophy of what used to be called idealism, not in the moral sense, but in the metaphysical sense. That is to say, of the feeling that the external world is in some way creation of the mind. Only we come to this point of view with very different assumptions than were held by people like Hegel.